Please turn in your Bibles with me to, once again, the fifth book of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, we're going to read from uh, verse 44 to chapter 5, verse 6. This is uh, an intro to the Ten Commandments, and uh, when I get back from vacation, Lord willing, we will... Uh, dive into the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments, looking at one each Sunday. And so we'll be in the Ten Commandments for at least a couple of months. But today we're looking at the introduction to the Ten Commandments. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 44 to chapter 5, verse 6. Before I read, let me offer a brief prayer. Let's pray. I speak now, O Lord, for your servants are listening, and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 44. Let's listen carefully to the word of God. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Beyond the Jordan, in the valley opposite of Beth Peor, in the land of Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites, who lived to the east beyond the Jordan. From Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Syrian, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, under the slopes of Pisgah. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, And you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We live in a country that prides itself in its freedoms. Americans love freedom. They love to talk about freedom. We just observed a national holiday where many people lit off uh, fireworks in the sky celebrating our freedom. And to be sure, many of the freedoms that we enjoy in this country are an unmitigated good worthy of our celebration. But we also live in a culture that makes an idol out of freedom where freedom is understood as the right to define your own identity and to live your own truth. 
It's a freedom without limits, freedom that is not ordered to any objective structure or ultimate purpose. And in a culture like that, you inevitably end up with resistance, even revolt, against any limits put on personal choice. And that's surely what we see happening all around us in our society today, isn't it? It's an influence that even affects us and our thinking about freedom. Our conception of freedom is so absolute that we interpret any constraint whatsoever upon us as absolutely impermissible. But as we get started and think about Moses' teaching here in Deuteronomy, I think we need to recognize that that way of thinking about freedom is radically opposed to the freedom that we enjoy in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the heart of the good news is the message of redemption. And at the heart of the message of redemption is what we could call an emancipation proclamation. It's about getting out. It's about captives being set free from tyranny and oppression. But instead of being set free to live any way we please or defining our own identity, the good news of redemption is that we have been set free for a purpose. To belong to God. To be his, to serve him as a people set free to walk in the law of liberty. And so this morning, I want us to consider Moses' introduction to the Ten Commandments, and we'll consider it in four parts. Moses knows that we need to understand grace in order to understand law. And so grace really is the focus in this passage as we take a look at it together. First of all, the priority of grace. Secondly, the power of grace. Thirdly, the personal nature of grace. And then fourth, the purpose of grace. Let's think first of all about the priority of grace. It would be hard to exaggerate the importance of the first four chapters of the book of Deuteronomy and how they prepare us, how they get us ready for everything that follows. Notice that in Moses' farewell discourse, his last message to God's people, he did not start by just giving the people a bunch of rules and laws and statutes. He begins with what scholars call the historical prologue. In chapters 1 through 4, underscoring, this is really the purpose of the historical prologue, to underscore the priority of God's grace before we ever get to God's commandments. Priority of God's grace. Before we get to all of the other laws that will then come after the Ten Commandments from chapters 5 to 26. And so we've got to get this straight before we get to the central part of the book of Deuteronomy in chapters 5 through 26. We've, we've come through the introduction, the historical prologue in chapters 1 through 4, but we need to pause and appreciate it the way it prepares us for what's to come. 
It's only after working through the story of how God saved his people out of slavery and bondage in Egypt and guided them through the wilderness patiently and has brought them all the way to the edge of the promised land that Moses then turns to the Ten Commandments. And then after chapter 5 launches into all of these other laws and rules. See, we, we need to see the drama that is undergirding the, the, the divine demands. We need to understand the story of redemption as the context in which the standards of God are given to God's people. And we, we need to see the way that God's commands are rooted in God's character. Moses wants us to see that the law follows the gospel and not the other way around. The law follows the gospel. And that's why Moses takes the time to repeat and retell the story of redemption from so many different perspectives and different angles in the first four chapters. This is also the point of the preface to the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6. It's, it's only after we hear the good news that the Lord is our God who brought us out of bondage that we are made ready and willing to serve him. You see the lesson, God always takes the initiative. God always takes the initiative. He is the source and beginning of every good thing, including our obedience. And when we turn to the New Testament, the priority of God's grace is only, is only magnified even more. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that God chose to save us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Not, not just before we were born, not just before the creation of all things, in eternity past, Ephesians 1.4. And so we need to step back and, and try to take this in. The, the good news is that our relationship with God does not depend upon human initiative. It does not depend on our initiative. It depends upon the priority of God who has chosen not only to enter into covenant with our fathers long before we were born, but as Paul puts it, God who predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Friends, if we, do, if we don't see where all of this freedom flows from, we will remain in bondage. We've got to see the priority of God's amazing grace. But not only that, not only do we need to see the priority of grace, secondly, we also need to understand the power of grace. And Moses teaches us about the power of grace in a way that might seem strange to us. He teaches us about the power of God's grace through geography. Do you notice all of the attention that's given to geography in this passage? It's what some have called a geography of victory. I love that phrase. 
Notice all of the geographical details at the end of chapter 4. Now ask, why, why does Moses take the time to give this sweeping survey of the land immediately after introducing the law? So he's just said, I'm, gonna, I'm about to give you the, the laws and the statutes and the rules. But then what does he do? After signaling he's going to give us the law, he goes back and he gives this vast survey of the land. After talking about the, the laws, the testimonies, the statutes and rules in verses 44 and 45, he reminds them that of the territory that God had already given the Israelites after defeating the two Amorite kings from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnarn, as far as the, of Mount Syrian, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, under the slopes of Pisgah. Right, we've, we've seen the priority of grace, which goes back all the way through time to eternity past, to God's decision. But now he gives us a view of the spread of the space of grace. A view of this geography of victory, and he does it in order to comfort. He does it in order to encourage. He, he, he does it in order to strengthen God's people to obey God's commands as they go in to conquer the rest of the land. He's giving this panoramic view for a sense of enthusiasm, for a sense of courage, for a sense of victory. It is meant to assure that what God commands, go in and take the land, God gives. For I am giving the land to you. What God commands, God gives. He's reminding them that the battle is won before it's even begun because the battle belongs to the Lord. God has already given his people a taste of victory. They've already conquered the last giant in the land. He's given them a taste of victory over Sion and Heshbon and Og, the king of Bashan. And so when he gave his people the law, he encouraged them with victory and the promise that he was with them and that he would go before them. And you see, it's out of this geography of victory then that God calls his people to act in obedience. And it's this very same principle that applies to us, brothers and sisters, in living out the Christian life. Just think about the geography of victory, if we can describe it that way. Think about the geography of victory that Paul describes in the New Testament in a passage like Colossians chapter 3, when he says, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above. Okay, so Moses is saying, look, you've already conquered the Amorites. You've conquered Sion. You've conquered Og. Go in and conquer the rest. And now Paul is saying, if then you have been raised with Christ, if you are seated with him in the heavenly places, then set your mind on things above. For you've died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Listen, put to death, therefore, 
what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Do you see how it's the very same logic, the very same gospel logic that is at work? You can fight the holy war, not against flesh and blood, but against sin, because you're already on the throne with Jesus. That is your true position. That is your position in Christ. This is a geography of victory out of which we are called to live the Christian life. And this is the power of grace. This is the elevated position that we occupy even now in Christ Jesus. This is the geography of victory out of which we are called to be obedient You have died and been raised with Christ. And friends, no truth could be more liberating or more empowering than that. You see, the good news is not only that God has forgiven us of our sins. The good news is also that in Christ Jesus, he has has conquered the domineering power of sin in our lives So that we really can say in Christ, no to our old slave master. And fight the good fight of faith. And see victory in the Christian life. I think the story of David and and Goliath is is so helpful in illustrating this for us. who's, Who's David? David is the Lord's anointed one. He is God's king. He's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not David, right? But what does David do? Well, he, he lops off Goliath's head and stands over him in victory. And what, then, what then do the men of Israel do? We're like the men of Israel. After seeing the giant's head lopped off, the decisive battle won, the men of Israel rise up with a shout and give chase to the armies all of the way to the gates of Gath and Ekron. So we can fight now because we have seen the decisive victory. But we have to see it. We have to place our trust in our true champion who goes before us. And I think we also need to say to really appreciate and to know the power of grace in in our lives, we've we've first of all got to see that we need to to be set free. That left to ourselves, we really are captives to sin. In John chapter 8, Jesus gets into a heated debate with a group of Pharisees who were deeply offended by his offer to set them free because they thought they already were. They were offended. So rather than rejoicing in the liberating power of the gospel, they rejected the good news as an insult, as many people do today, because they don't want to admit that they're slaves. They're slaves. But it's impossible to receive the good news until you are ready to recognize the bad news. And the bad news is that every human being is born in chains. Although we may enjoy many kinds of civil and social freedoms, we are not what Jesus calls free indeed. 
Whether, whether we see it or not, whether we recognize it or not, there are bonds that have snapped shut around our necks and our hands and our feet. As Jesus explains in John chapter 8, verse 24, he says, everyone who practices sin, in other words, anyone who makes it a habit, a, a way of life, and goes on continue sinning, Jesus says, is a slave to sin. Anyone who makes a practice of sinning is a slave to sin. That's humanity. That's Jesus' description of humanity apart from grace, enslaved to sin. But the good news is that God has broken sin's power through Jesus' death and and resurrection. And friends, that power is real. That power is available and We have it on the highest authority. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That takes us to the next thing. That all of this is so very personal. Grace is personal. Not not only do we need to think about the priority of grace and the power of grace, we need to reflect on the personal nature of grace. Moses wants us to see the personal nature of grace here. It's, it's written all over this passage. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Let me just jump around in these verses. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and rules that I speak before you today. Verse 2, The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. Verses 2 and 3 are just mind-bogglingly amazing because most of the people that Moses is addressing here were not actually present when God made this covenant with Israel at Mount Horeb. The majority of Moses' audience were born in the wilderness after the exodus had already happened, after the covenant was already made at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And yet Moses says, this is for you. You were there. God was speaking to you. I, I know all of your parents dropped dead on the desert floor, but you were there and this is for you. Moses wants the covenant people of God to own the covenant for themselves. It's not just for their fathers and mothers. It's for their children after them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant. Moses is putting it that way to exaggerate the point. He made it with us who are alive today, he says. And this underscores the personal nature of of God's grace. That God's grace is profoundly all the way down, personal. It's even experienced, as Moses describes it here, in face-to-face communication. Do you see that's what he says in verse 4? The Lord spoke with you face-to-face, people who weren't there, the Lord spoke with you face-to-face out of the midst of of the fire. Even though they had not been there to hear God's voice or see the blazing 
mountain for themselves, Moses insists that God continues to speak to his people. But how? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. How did Moses, or how, excuse me, did God speak to the next generation? Verse 5 tells us, through Moses preaching to them on the plains of Moab and telling them of what God had done for them and that all of it was for them. It wasn't for their parents. It's personal. It's for you. He's, he's speaking to you. He's addressing you. He declares his covenant to you. So kids, I want to especially talk to our young ones for a few minutes here. This means that what God has done to save his people and everything God has to say about that is for you. It's for you. His covenant is for you. His promises are given to you. His law is for you. And and you've got to respond. Your, Your parents can't act for you. When Deuteronomy says, choose life. That's that's God speaking personally to you, appealing to you. And so all of us, do we see how personal this is? God God spoke to the people through Moses, proclaiming the word, a word preserved for us in the book of Deuteronomy. And I wonder, do we hear the word like that? Do we listen to the word like that? God is speaking to us because according to God's word, he is. (laughs) And he sets life and death before us. And he urges us to choose life. He declares his covenant to you face to face. And this is why, for example, in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews and chapter 3, verse 7. Let me just give you one example of this kind of theology of um, God's personal grace at work. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. The author of Hebrews quotes an Old Testament psalm written hundreds of years before. And the author of Hebrews says, As the Holy Spirit says. Present tense. It's not as the Holy Spirit said. It's as the Holy Spirit is saying to you, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Assumption of the author of Hebrews is that in the ministry of God's word, the, the voice that we hear is the very voice of God when the word of God is proclaimed. And so how are we supposed to respond to this? How, how do we respond to the priority of God's grace, the power of God's grace, the personal nature of God's grace. What are we supposed to do with this? Moses wants us to see in the end that God's grace has a purpose. It has a goal. Grace sets us free to live for God. And that's what Moses emphasizes structurally In the book of Deuteronomy, it's not so much limited to a single verse or text in the book of Deuteronomy. It's indicated in the movement of the book as a whole, in the movement of 
the story of redemption. It stands out when you step back and you look at the story and the overarching story in this final book of Moses. You see, God's goal was never simply to get Israel out of Egypt. It was never simply to get them out. It was never just to bring them out into the wilderness. It was always, always to bring them to something far, far better. It was never just about deliverance from slavery in Egypt. It was always about belonging to a new master. And that's why Moses moves from the drama of salvation in Deuteronomy 1 through 4 to all of the demands in Deuteronomy 5 through 26. The demands of service are the natural overflow of redemption whereby we are freed to be bound to someone and something better. You know, Martin Luther, we, we used Martin Luther earlier in our, our prayer of confession. Another tremendously helpful quote from Martin Luther. He says that a Christian is perfectly free. Now, brothers and sisters, you are perfectly free. You are, Martin Luther says, Lord of all, subject to none. Do you believe that about yourself? That you're perfectly free because that is what you are as a Christian. And Luther says at the same time, a Christian is perfectly dutiful. A servant of all, subject to all. Isn't, isn't that what we see in the glorious reign of Jesus who revealed his rule from the cross, the shape of freedom rendered in obedience? This is, this is one of the central paradoxes of the Christian life that really rubs up against cultural notions of freedom today. We are free to be bound. We are set free from captivity to be slaves of God and to become servants of God is to experience true liberty. But to follow your own way and to mistake that for freedom is actually the very worst kind of slavery. But you see, again, we live, we live in a culture that has taught us to think that freedom is doing it your own way. It's following your own desires. True freedom is the uninhibited ability to express how you feel, to express your desires. But friends, is that, is that really freedom? you think about King Solomon with me for a minute. I think he's a good test case of that question. Is this really freedom? Because you know, it's hard to think of somebody who had more power and more resources to get whatever his heart wanted. Right? He, he ruled at the, you know, the pinnacle, the peak of Israel's power in the ancient world. He was unimaginably wealthy. And yet, Solomon was dominated by his desires. He wanted more wealth, more political power, more national security, more personal pleasure. That's evidenced in the fact that he took to himself 700 wives and 300 concubines, not just for his own personal pleasure, because in the ancient world that was the way you formed political alliances and gained more power and more wealth. You see, Solomon had all of the earthly freedom and power in the world, but he was in fact a slave. 
He sat, think about it, he sat on an ivory tower overlaid with gold, surrounded by 12 lions, but Solomon could not rule over his own heart. And throughout the narrative of 1 Kings 1 through 11, Solomon is even depicted in Pharaoh-like terms. He married a princess of Egypt. He used forced labor to complete his building project. And he acquired big piles of gold and even chariots from Egypt. Now just think about that for a second. The, the symbolic significance of a king of Israel wanting the chariots of Egypt. The chariots of Egypt that chased the Israelites to the edge of the Red Sea. Solomon, if we can put it this way, Solomon was still being chased by those chariots. Not, not in the outside, not in the external sense, but, but even more frighteningly on, on the inside. And you see how frightening that really is. Do you, do you see the deeper slavery, the slavery of sin on the heart that Jesus came to set us free from? Chariots from Egypt had chased God's people to the edge of the sea and God had delivered his people and drowned those chariots in the sea. The Lord has overthrown the horse and the rider into the sea. But at the zenith of Israel's greatest king's rule, he wanted those chariots. He wanted that gold. He wanted that military power. He wanted that national security because he wasn't satisfied with the Lord and so he sought pleasure in literally a thousand different places. But friends, can't we be just like that in our own lives? Can't we be just like Solomon? Isn't that the bondage that if we're honest with ourselves, we have all felt before? That's what Jesus came to save us from. We are freed to be bound to a better master, to belong to God and obey his commands instead of going our own way is to experience freedom indeed. Because you can't have freedom without form. You can't have freedom without purpose. There's no such thing as formless, purposeless freedom where you get to pursue whatever you want. But again, this is precisely the message that we run up against in our culture right now, isn't it? A culture of freedom unchecked by anything but our own inward desires. A culture where freedom is lacking any definition, where freedom is actually the final authority in our lives. And so we are predisposed to hate anything that might constrain us in any way whatsoever. So total is the demand of this new God in our lives that we have even reached the point where we think of human nature as a kind of trap that we must escape or redefine. But Deuteronomy proclaims a radically different message about freedom. True freedom is not found in being left to yourself to follow your own way and do your own thing. That is actually precisely what the Bible calls slavery. Slavery to sin. The purpose of God's grace is to deliver us from such bondage 
and bring us into a broad and, and spacious place. And it is actually only when you follow the narrow way that you will find your feet established in a broad and spacious place. It is only when you trust and follow Jesus that you will be free indeed. And so as we prepare to work our way through the Ten Commandments, the standards that God gives to his covenant people, let us not make the foolish mistake that God is somehow cramping our style. That he somehow doesn't want what's really best for us by telling us how to live. He is our life. Remember, that's the message of Deuteronomy. He is the one in whom true life in a broad place flowing with milk and honey is found. And so, as the recipients of God's amazing grace... Let us be careful to do all that he commands. For we have been set free to live for him who is our life. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and praise you that you are a God of redemption. That you set captives free. You bring them out of sin and darkness and death. And you bring them into righteousness and life and peace and we thank you that uh, your grace is the priority of our lives really your redeeming love is the theme and the banner that hangs over us and we pray that as your people who have experienced your amazing grace your personal grace your powerful grace that we would always remember the purpose of grace that we've been saved to be yours forever, and we've been saved to live for you. So strengthen us in Christ Jesus and by the Holy Spirit to be obedient to your commands. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.